0: Hey everyone, this is our last episode before our New York City Sound Design Meetup on Thursday, October 26th, 7pm at the Crompton Alehouse in Chelsea. Come hang out and share some stories and some laughs with the New York Sound community. Also, remember you have until November 19th to submit your favourite field recording stories for our upcoming crowdsourced episode. Full details on both the meetup and how to participate in the field recording crowdsource episode can be found at tonebenderspodcast.com. welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today as we talk about the subtle art of cutting BGs and ambiences. This is a craft that is actually often overlooked in the conversation of sound design, and it seems to become the ugly stepchild of cutting sound effects, dialogue, or music. But I think we can all agree that ambiences are what glue a scene together and grounded in a specific place and time. Without strong ambiences, the worlds created in recent shows like The Last of Us, Avatar, or The Grand Budapest Hotel would feel flimsy and simply would not work. So we've gathered some editors together today to preach the gospel of the importance of BGs and hash out the many ways that they tackle making ambiences influence the overall experience when we watch a show. So first up, we have our returning champion, Tim Nielsen. Tim is based out of the Bay Area and is a sound supervisor who really enjoys cutting the ambiences on his own projects. Projects like The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, Solo, A Star Wars Story, and Moana. Welcome back to Tonebenders, Tim. It's great to
1: talk to you again. Thank you very much. Good to be here.
0: So next up, we have Toronto-based sound editor Kayla Stewart, who really opened eyes with her work on the recent Guillermo del Toro film Nightmare Alley, which had a very specific feel to it that was locked down by the ambiences that she cut. She also worked on the Fraggle Rock series reboot, which got heavy rotation in my house. So welcome, Kayla. It's great to meet you.
2: Great to meet you, too.
0: Also joining us is Mitchell Lesner, working out of LA. Mitchell was responsible for the ambiences on multiple episodes of the Last of Us series, which I thought had some of the greatest BGs that I've come across in a long time. He also worked on Yellow Jackets and Scavenger's Rain, which none of us here have seen yet, but I think will be out by the time this episode comes out. The trailer looks absolutely amazing. It's nice to meet you, Mitchell. Thanks for joining us.
3: Nice to meet you too, Tim. Thanks for having me.
0: Finally, we have Michael O'Connor, with us for this talk. Michael has worked on a bunch of great series, including Wu-Tang and American Saga, which is one of my favorite shows. And he also recently released a very cool ambience library that's super unique. It's called Symphonic Ambiances, and it has a module workflow. And I think we'll kind of weave that in because I think it's a good way of getting into ambiences a bit. Michael, it's good to see you. It's nice to be here. Well, let's start the conversation off with just talking about why each of
1: you like cutting ambiences. What about it draws it to you? Tim, why do you get drawn to ambiences? Some of the early projects that I worked on were sci-fi and or fantasy, and I just really fell in love really quickly with how detailed you could get and how much of the storytelling could be done through the ambiences. And it was also a great chance to get out and record for me, which I love to do as well. So it was a great opportunity to just try and find new things to incorporate. And I think maybe because it is the unsung hero and, you know, it's, it's it's something that's pawned off. I mean, it was pawned off to me on Lord of the Rings, I'm sure, because I was sort of the new effects editor. And they were like, here, you, you deal with this. I don't want to deal with it. And, you know, I took that as a challenge and uh, on a movie like that, a huge responsibility. So I've just always found that it's one of the most creative places to play in to, for me if the film allows it and if the filmmakers allow it. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes you're kind of stuck with something mundane. But with the right project i just find it's one of the most creative parts of the filmmaking for me personally.
2: A lot of the same experience, you know, when you're first starting out, people people throw bg's your way cuz it's everyone thinks like oh that's an easy thing, but it's a lot more detailed than i think a lot of people realize. It gives you an opportunity to tell little stories that might be happening sort of around the main action and really set the tone for the scene and and even for like the entire project.
3: Mitchell, I had a similar experience as Tim and Kayla. I started out cutting BGs as well as a new union editor. But I also agree that BGs can help set the tone of like any scene. It's like a horror, like if you're working on a horror film, like maybe you want to have like very sparse backgrounds to like build the tension. Something like the Last of Us, you're going to have, like, like a snowy scene. Maybe you're going to have, like, wind gusts kind of coming in and out, like ebbs and flows and just, like, movements here and there to help set a tone for, like, Abandoned Warehouse. I just really like how with BGs can really help support a story, like support the film or TV show that you're working on.
0: Mike, what about you? What what got you into cutting ambiences? Like all you, I, I, I totally agree that,
4: like, is wonderful to help support the story, but uh, without repeating the same points, I feel like early on in my career, just working on, you know, indie films, uh, I remember the magic of getting handed over the video, the final cut, and I'm like touching it for the first time for post-sound, and there's n- no ambiences that have been cut in. At least that project I had, the editor may have like some basic bird track or something, but I'm I was a budding artist. I wanted to do it all myself you turn it from like what sounds like a film set into an actual world when you start to cut in those sounds. That's one of those times in my career where, where I remember being so excited by like, "Oh my gosh, this feels like a real film now that I've like put life into this," whereas like if you take it away, it just sounds like actors talking on a film set. So, I think like I've kind of been addicted ever since then and there's just like endless possibilities with what you can do. So it, it, you have to show restraint and you have to figure out the aesthetic of the film. And I, I think it, it is like definitely it's an art to to build some like really nice fitting ambiences. And everyone has a different style, which is also really fun.
0: In my own work, I work mostly in animation. And one of the things I love about ambiences is like you were just saying, Mike, like when we get the uh, the picture handed over to us. There's some guide effects, but they they don't cut ambience at all in animation, at least in the series level that I'm working at. So like you're really giving it life, but also you can animation doesn't have the resources in series animation. Never mind, are there birds in the trees? The trees are just kind of puffballs. There are individual leaves in a lot of the trees, you know? So the ambiences suddenly give the lack of tree- leaves on the trees. You can put them there with the sound. You can make the forest come alive with birds and such that were never animated, but suddenly are there because the sound gave it to it. And the sound can add so much to it. Now, obviously, a lot of that is true in the non-animated world. But from my own experience in animation, once you put the BGs in... It's a whole different experience, even when you're still listening to just uh, the dialogue and the the crappy temp uh, effects that the <laughs>
1: editors have put in. It, it really does bring it to life. Yeah, I find that like with the prevalence of VFX now in everything too, and every background is a visual effect now as well. You know, there's mm-hmm. no real practical backgrounds anymore that the sound is that much more important, that, you know, the the shots don't look real. If they're ever going to look real, they look real when the sound is finally applied. Sometimes they still don't look real, but, you know, sometimes the sound (laughs) will actually make a scene believable to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the idea of kind of the aesthetics of uh, the ambiences in a project. Mitchell, I mentioned already that you worked on some of the episodes of The Last of Us. Like, that has a, a specific world to it, that the is really lock down. And Kayla, I mentioned Nightmare Alley, a very similar thing, where the ambiences made a creepiness to that film that I don't think wouldn't have had the same depth without the ambiences. But how do you lock down on what that is? Maybe, Mitchell, do you want to start with that and how you kind of landed where you did? Well, I
3: did play the video game, so I was very familiar with like the tone of the show I would just go through each episode and just figure out, oh, what kind of mood do I want to create for this scene? Say in the beginning, like the first episode, when they start off in Sarah's bedroom... We want it to be very peaceful, very nice. Like, it's the show starting off like, oh, everything's okay in the world right now. (laughs) And then it's a whole build up to the scene where, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the show yet, (laughs) Sarah gets shot and there's all these like, it's almost like a riot happening. There's like offstage gunshots. There's like distant explosions. There's people like screaming in the background, like... We really wanted to, like, just build the moments in that first episode. Can you
4: please talk about the cough in the in the classroom that you came up with? Because <laughs> I will never live that
3: down. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> uh, so there's a moment in the classroom where I was like, ah, you know, it would be funny if there is, like, this little offstage cough from, like, one of the students to kind of signal that something's go- something's not right, like something's going on.
2: That cough plays so well cuz funny that you bring it up cuz that's actually one of the things that when I was discussing it discussing the show with friends and and everything even like non-soundy friends people would actually commented on that scene specifically as really building tension and those little moments in the background. So that's that's really cool. It worked so well. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much.
3: Was that on the
4: effects editing pass for you or the background editing pass? You know, how these areas are gray, you
3: know? Oh, yeah. So that was the backgrounds. That was like, tend to think of like the offstage stuff, like as backgrounds. So I'll do like a background bed pass, and then I'll go forward and do... The little nooks and crannies of like the off stage effects, and so the cough was an off stage effect.
4: It was very effective. I, in that moment, I was like, "Those yeah. kids are all screwed. They're they're just all dead." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, like I, I just and
3: I, I was
4: so so stoked on that. Thanks, man.
3: But there was also a point. I think it was episode five where Joel and Ellie are going through the stairwell of the site, the skyscraper. And I was like, oh, what could be possibly, like, eerie, like, make an eerie presence for this stairwell that I've never really heard. So I pitched down these pool laps. I had, I had a recording of these pool laps in my uh, my library. Like someone swimming laps in a pool, you mean? Yeah, but I pitched them, like, way down, and then... I threw some Ultraverb on it and got these cool little eerie kind of like creaks.
4: Nice. That's awesome. That's so cool.
1: I loved in the series too. Like, I think it was episode three. I don't know which of the episodes you did, but the episode with Bill. And, you know, we'd have just like a total break from the Sonic world of all the other episodes, you know, for that whole episode, really, you know. And like they've created this little utopia. And I think that's episode three. I could be wrong, but no,
3: you're right. It was episode yeah.
1: three. And it was just like, it was just, you know, so stark that, you know, for for such a long time, it just felt like the world outside didn't exist. And then, you know, every time you'd cut back to the to everything else, I mean, it was a very wonderfully detailed track.
3: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was actually the first episode I cut on. Um, and then we actually went back and did <laughs> 101, the first episode. So there was like time cuts throughout the day and I'd be like, oh, let me get rid of those birds. Maybe I'll add like some other birds in there and just kind of like, and then add new birds through like the changing of seasons because I didn't want it all to sound like "Uh, it's the same birds why do we hear the same birds over and over nice
0: so Tim you uh, as a sound supervisor have worked on some really big films when you're sitting down for spotting sessions do you go over ambiences with the directors does that even come up or do they like how how do you tackle it when you're speaking with the uh, the creatives
1: it doesn't come up a lot, honestly. I mean, they're usually—it's it's weird. Some directors are really good about spotting emotionally, which is the most important thing. That's all I really care about. And You know, some just sort of rattle off, well, we need a door here, and then there's a car here. And you're like, yeah, okay, yes, well, we know that. We don't really need to talk about the really obvious things. Some directors get into the emotion of scenes and without necessarily getting into specifics in the backgrounds. But they'll, you know, they'll make clear the intention of a scene. This scene is sad. This scene is tense. You know, and that's what I just need to know. You know, if it's not obvious from the story and if they're playing, if they're trying to subvert what you see or something like that, it's very useful for them to give you some emotional guidelines. But beyond that, very rarely do we get into into any details. If anything, they usually want to talk about specific sequences and the effects work in them and things like that, you know, and solo the big train sequence or something, and they want to talk about where's music going to be, where's music maybe not going to be, and things like that, which are important too. But yeah, I think a lot of directors, when they get into the final mix, will really start to hear the backgrounds for the first time. And then we usually sort of work on things in the final mix often. Rarely does, for me, does backgrounds come up in the spotting. Usually it comes up at the end. So you're just using your own creative brain to come up with it at that point? Yeah, usually the first pass is mine, you know, and which is Fun. You know, I mean, the movie, I always think the movie the project usually tells you what it needs. You know, if you're paying attention to it, you ought to be able to know roughly. You're saying in The Last of Us, this, the, the storytelling kind of guides you and then you help reinforce the storytelling with what you're doing. And it's the important thing is just to reach out to the director picture editor when you're unclear on something like, hey, is this scene supposed to be funny or is this supposed to be, you know, and if, if you're in that situation, then somebody hasn't done their job as well as they should if you have to ask those questions. But it comes up occasionally where there's some ulterior motive going on with the with the show. Yeah, so the first pass is uh, for me just completely freeform. I don't make any notes. I don't think about it. I just start throwing things and I work very fast on the first pass of the backgrounds because I'm just looking for the essence of things. I'm not worried about the detail at all at the beginning. I just need to find the foundational work to start. And I always start with that. I always start with the airs, and the most static things because that gives me the first lego block and i force myself to just work really fast so i might cut the entire movie in a day you know the backgrounds the first pass um, and then just layer upon layer upon layer keep refining it It should work without the dialogue for the first couple of weeks i don't even want to listen to the to the dialogue i don't want to you know and then i have to start weaving things around it but yeah i, I like that when it's very instinctual when i sort of I don't overthink it on the first couple of passes.
0: Kayla, do you want to talk about your marching orders when you started cutting the BGs for Nightmare Alley? I'm assuming it wasn't the director in that case, but uh, tell us about how you got started on that.
1: It was
2: our um, lead effects editor, Nathan Robitaille, that was sort of giving me direction. And he had me start on uh, he gave me just like a few scenes to start off with because we were getting things a little bit piecemeal in the beginning. So he had me start on some of the carnival scenes and some of the uh, exterior scenes. So the carnival, carnivals are always a really interesting beast to tackle, I find. And strangely enough, I think almost every single show I've worked on in the last several years has had a carnival show up <laughs> in it somewhere. <laughs> it's like, it's statistically improbable at this point.
4: You, you've been pigeonholed as the the carnival ambience editor. It's
2: It's true. It's true. (laughs) But um, carnivals, especially when it's like a big, long scene, it's always trying to move through and make sure it doesn't sound static. Because if there's a character and we're following them through as they're walking past different booths and and attractions and everything around them, you need everything to sort of change with it. Right. So like it was sort of trying to find those moments where I could shift, you know, stop hearing one thing and start hearing another and telling these little stories that are happening off screen. There's another show that I did a few years ago called Anne with an E. And there was a carnival episode in that. And that one had tons of these really long sort of walk and talks as they're walking through this carnival. And it's set in the late 1800s. So it's
0: an Anna Green Gables. Yes. uh,
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's set in the late 1800s.
0: Well, not modern telling, but it still takes place back in time, but it's kind of a modern take on it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So being set late 1800s in small town, Prince Edward Island, it was trying to find carnival sounds, but there's no electricity. There's no cars. There's no rides, nothing like that. So with that show, I learned a lot to rely more on crowds and shift in crowd energy and activity and what sorts of people were hearing in different places. And so I tried to match that style on Nightmare Alley and do the same sort of thing where on top of just shifting what games and attractions we're hearing, shifting the crowd. So in one area, maybe there's a crowd watching a show or something like that. And we hear it sort of swell and just that sort of thing. And then, as the movie progresses, you know the main character is sort of going off the deep end a little bit and going down a not so great path. And at, so, at the end, when we get back to carnival stuff again, it's it's a little darker, I guess. When we get back to the carnival at the end, it's not it's not an active carnival. They're they're in the process of setting it up, but there's at that point it's a lot of like dusty, dry wind, and it's kind of just it just sounds more there's not the joy in it that there is towards the beginning when we hear the carnival so it's more just it's just a bunch of men setting up and construction sounds and putting up tents and yelling there's not the same like excitement and joy that you would normally hear from a carnival so it sort of just transitions that way
4: I was going to say that the, the crowd energy thing you mentioned is like, that's so hard. Like, it's so detail oriented <laughs> and to like keep it fluid and not sound like you're just fading between different yeah. types. Like, that's so tedious. Can I ask what you use for source material for the the 1800s project? I haven't seen that. But
2: Oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> I don't even remember it just. Digging through libraries until, because also trying to keep it M and E safe at the same time, yeah. like it, it's just, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just I don't remember that was, it was back in twenty eighteen I guess when I did that one. Yeah, just digging through a lot of libraries. Thankfully, I have access to the libraries that we have at Sound Dogs, so I could use some of that, and and also just a lot of us thinking outside of the box, because and that's. When I'm when I'm working with newer editors and trying to like teach them how to cut BGs and stuff, always trying to tell them, like, don't just uh, if you're looking for carnival crowd, don't just search carnival crowd. Try and think outside of the box of like, where else might I find a crowd sound that I could use instead? So I know I wanted to pepper in like like carnival barkers. That you can hear sort of yelling things out, but keeping it M safe, I, I it can't be an audible language, right? So I I ended up finding auctioneers at a fish market, and I think it's it, it sounds like it's um it's either Arabic or Turkish, and just sort of cutting chunks of it, just little bits that aren't full words, um, but can <laughs> sound if you blend it, and it just sounds. Like somebody's yelling something, but you really can't tell what. Uh, and then once it's like processed enough and and pushed into the background, you just sort of hear this very indistinct auctioneer type yell.
4: Yeah, right on. Now the The recontextualizing crowds is. Is really a challenge sometimes. It made me think of. I was working on an episode, uh, Tim, you brought it up, the Wu Tang and American Saga, and the showrunners wanted like this really sketchy sounding club where like people get knifed there, like it's just like super sketch place to be. And so I was like, well, I can't just search like, you know, sketchy nightclub. Like that doesn't exist. (laughs) You know, it's going to be like totally fake. And so I ended up going with um, boxing crowds. It's like a lot of like, like aggression and like testosterone, and so just like a like ah, ah, you know, just, and you're like, okay, yeah, that works, but like he's got to like <laughs> think on it, like what, what other you, context?
1: You didn't, you didn't go to a nightclub and knife some people with a recorder, you know? For I did art? that. I did that, but the voices were distinguishable, so I
4: had to, yeah. you know, <laughs> re- rethink the strategy. I know, yeah. Please try uh, not to
1: speak English, discernible words, while I stab you. Repeatedly.
4: Yeah, just printed on my shirt in bold text i'm an audio recordist yeah and this also (laughs) might be going back to the carnival stuff this might be too in the weeds but in terms of laying that out for the mixers when you talk about like keeping the movement like say the camera is moving through attractions or whatever it was and i could see you like establishing an area in like stereo or like quad files or whatever but then you're like oh i'm moving through it and now i have to give the mixer like these like kind of like little food groups to move around. Like, how do you prep that? Do you like turn them to monos so they're easier to pan with? Or do you like just keep them in separate food buses in the mix template? Like, I'm just curious about the, the technical layout there.
2: Luckily, I was passing my stuff on to another more experienced editor. So I'm, I can't say for sure if he changed my organization too much or not. Sure, sure. But uh, I typically try and keep it, Anything that's going to run through the full scene. So airs, wind, stuff that's, that's not going to change as we move. I would keep those on my A set of of BGs. And then depending on how wide it gets, sometimes I'll break it up like B set is just going to be crowds. And so then I try and checkerboard those as I'm transitioning them. And then C would be games and, and other other activities like that it de- it depends on the show like i th- that's how i did it for nightmare alley I'm trying to think back to and i think on Anne, i had games and crowds together on the b set because it wasn't going as wide because it is it-, it is like for television so typically we don't have to go as wide as we might for <laughs> feature film
4: Right, right, right. Okay, yeah, I know every, like, kind of mix team does it differently, so I, I was just curious, because I've been yeah. I've re-recording mixers who are like, I want it all mono, it's got to, like, be easier to grab or whatever, but, like, yeah. for amb- for ambiences, you know, you're like, oh, but I don't want to give you mono, you know? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
1: So that brings, that brings up a question, I'm curious, like, Mitchell on Last of Us, how wide were the were your cut tracks to the back? They must have been quite wide, as wide as the feature, I'm guessing.
3: Actually, the beds were actually three pre-dubs and then there is one pre-dub for offstage effects. And then sometimes we make like a pre-dub for like, oh, there's like a snow gusts and that would just be like one pre-dub and then there'd be like a rain pre-dub. There is that one scene in the Bill and Frank episode where it's raining outside and Oh, man, I can't remember the people. The Raiders uh, (laughs) were (laughs) coming. Sorry. The Raiders are coming. You see, like, they're in the forest. So there has to be there's a lot of rain and different perspective cuts for that. We go back inside the house and then we go outside the house. So it has a different pre-dub for the rain since it was so big. But actually, the beds. I don't feel like that was that many
1: pre-dubs. How many do you usually work 148. with? One hundred and forty-eight. It depends. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. mean, rings. Rings probably had one hundred and fifty background tracks across maybe eight pre-dubs, something like that. But that's also it depends if the mixer wants to checkerboard or not. You know, back then we had to checkerboard because we were printing still to mag, and and different things in it. So we you know we would checkerboard A B so usually a1a2 b1b2 like that a lot of, nowadays mixing in the box a lot of mixers don't care about checkerboarding the ambiences anymore so we could get by with maybe six six background predevs or eight total something like that but um yeah eight it's pretty typical for us on a on a big feature
3: okay yeah i didn't i didn't feel limited i was just like oh just got to make the right Right decisions and right. just go from there. Mike, I want to dig into your
0: uh, recent library that you released, Symphonic ambiances. Something that's really cool about it. It's a modular workflow. Maybe you can explain it a bit better than I, but quickly, you, you have uh, scenes. For instance, one of them is an arcade. And you have one stereo pair that is everything in the arcade. Then you also have split-outs of the people in the arcade, a couple of the games in the arcade, someone playing whack-a-mole in the arcade. Everything separated out differently. It kind of leads to the question of how to make the choice between that one perfect sound that's really complex or building up from multiple simpler things. Just as a side note, that library worked out really well. My son had a bunch of friends over, and uh, they are asking me what I do, and I use it as a, like a tutorial to explain to them how in-depth sound can be by playing them the full-up track and asking <laughs> them what they were hearing. And then I got to play them, the individual elements, and they were like, oh, yeah, that was there. And it, it, it was a kind of an amazing educational thing, and I recommend anyone that's getting into this industry, if you can get a hold of that library to kind of just learn how ambiences work, it's kind of amazing. I, it was. It's a really fun thing to just Listen kind to of— Listen to Tim. Uh,
4: Everyone needs to buy this library.
0: I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I said no. get your hands on it. I didn't say buy it. Oh, Okay.
4: Um, <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> 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 You know what no, I'm uh, done
4: with this call? No, I'm
1: just kidding. We <laughs> know, <laughs> we know how things work in Canada apparently. Yeah. yeah,
4: yeah. Uh, I mean the reason why I made this library, the symphonic ambiences, uh like the rest of us, we're all trying to get home at a reasonable hour. We want our you know, we want to save time. I work in television mostly. I get on average for an hour long show on my shows I get around 6 to 7 days per episode. It's a very tight deadline for doing this is backgrounds and effects and design uh if there is any. But um so it's like I'm on like pretty wicked fast shows and I love cutting backgrounds. Like I love backgrounds with a lot of detail with a lot of options for my mixers, you know, I don't want stuff to be baked in there and I think it was born out of necessity, um, because sometimes you'd be like, "Oh yeah, like here, here's a great arcade ambience." And then if the mixer or director is like, "Oh, what's that weird sounding game? Like there shouldn't be an Atari console there. That that won't work." And then you have to toss out the whole stereo ambience or whatever it is, and you're like, "Well, we don't have an arcade anymore." So I was kind of like, "Okay, it'd be nice to like just set up a library where you have all those split out tracks." That work on their own, but also they're kind of laid out in a way that you could, if you were like, you know, uh, under the gun and having to work fast, you can go, okay, let's bring in this, um, we'll keep the arcade example, let's bring in this arcade scene as i'm calling them to call, call it something different than an ambience and you've got like four different options for video game sounds and then yeah like uh tim mentioned there's like a whack-a-mole sort of a thing and then like kids and adults like as a wall track as another layer and that way you can go oh like this game's a little too loud um i'll take that game out um oh it's actually only adults it's a wedding party so you just like kill that ambience and you throw in your own so i just wanted something that was going to be a little bit more customizable Um, But also have that like kind of, you know, when we're under pressure to work faster, it's like, how do you deliver like high quality results faster? And I was like, well, this is like hopefully there. But it's also for me, I just like sometimes you're like, all I need are reverse car beeps for a construction site. That's all I need. Like just those reverse beeps. Where are those reverse beeps? And you like go through your whole library and you get like, beep beep and you're like oh perfect and then there's like arf, 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 you know like there's a dog barking or something You're like I just I all I wanted to beep so like that was another reason I made this library was to like have like these clean and long like three minute five minute files of like just that one thing because as background editors it drives you nuts if like you have one clean minute of whatever that thing is and then like a minute in there's like a dog barking or a plane a prop airplane just totally intrudes on it so I was like this is going to be like my dream of like, just like having everything isolated and like nothing, but like at the same time, trying to not suck the life out of it. Like that's, that's what's dangerous about having kind of pre-cooked backgrounds is that. So, so that was the reason why I made it. I don't really want to like be too hard sell about it, but, but yeah, that, that was, it was born out of like wanting to save time on my, on my TV shows really. Um, And because I, I kind of cut backgrounds all the time. I was like, Oh, I I'm sitting on like 10 years of recordings. I can like pull enough of these ambiences together to make it, you know, somewhat of a useful resource. So, so yeah.
2: You've sold me on it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh gosh.
2: Everything you're describing. I'm just sitting there like the amount of times I found the perfect background and then there's a plane in it or yeah. there's some guy riding by on a bicycle singing. Right. And like, right. I'll go, I'll go into <laughs> RX And try and clean out, which thanks, I am so grateful for that software. Oh my God. Because I could, sometimes that's, I can just save it by cleaning out that one sound, but sometimes it's. Beyond. This is getting in the <laughs>
4: weeds, but using RX, like I have to say, there's the deconstruct module, which Renee Coronado, uh, Coronado, that was a shout out to Renee Coronado, but short uh, Renee Coronado, um, <laughs> brought that deconstruct module up on one of the podcasts, and I use it all the time, especially for cleaning up backgrounds, because if you have a great background with dialogue in the background like some person at a park and you're like I don't want that voice if you highlight that and use the tonal slider and adjust your noise to tonal range you can like sap people's voices out of recordings and like clean the rest or keep the rest of it intact it's pretty incredible if the if the source is not too tonal in in its character so like i use it all the time and it's so useful like at the beach like is a perfect example if you have like really nice waves or something at a beach and then you got like kids in the background like yay mommy i love you and just highlight that kid deconstruct tonality minus infinity and they're gone like it's it's pure magic zero Good kids to know. <laughs> yeah, zero kids at my beaches. Exactly.
2: We need the D-Kid module.
4: The D-Kid. The oh D-Bird, now
2: D-Kid.
1: But it's it's also a good reminder, like, if, if you record ambiences, don't record 38-second ambiences. Record yes. seven or eight-minute ambiences. Yes. Right? I yeah. mean, even go, go air longer than you think because of the lags those exact things. You're going to find things you want to cut around mm-hmm. and you don't want to find yourself with 12 seconds of the nice air left as after you've cut out the planes and the dogs and the kids, you know, and so sometimes it means when I'm recording, it means I'll even return to a location if I hear some loud, obnoxious person is crackling a paper bag or something i'll just but i'll recognize it's a great location i'll just you know walk around somewhere else for 30 minutes and then walk back past there again and try it another time or you know scream obscenities at them and chase them out of the park but i'm in trouble (laughs) for (laughs) that too exactly
4: pull pull that knife out that you brought to the club
1: exactly yeah
4: yeah now absolutely and like if it's like a diverse kind of like background like lots of stuff going on and it's like at all like telling of the location like if it's like los angeles like middle of los angeles Mm -hmm. it may seem boring now but in like 20 to 30 years that's going to be a golden ambience like gas engines are going to go away like for for just like historical posterity purposes sometimes i'm like ooh, i want to keep these 30 minutes because there's enough in there but if it's like the same kind of thing happening i'll make it like a 10 minute ambience and call it a day
0: (laughs) Well, there's something that happens in movies and TV shows that is really amazing in that dogs only bark in the distance between lines of dialogue. It's really amazing how it's well amazing these how dogs they know how trained. to do that. Very smart dogs. Dogs, the animal departments, they are really what well, well trained their dogs. I wanted to kind of dig into that idea of filling in the spaces between dialogue with uh, ambience. Everybody calls these types of ambiences something different. Some people call them specifics. Some people call them spots. Do you want to talk about maybe what you call them and how you go about using them?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, like you said, unfortunately you're sort of tasked. With cutting around the dialogue often, although I, I actually sort of try to work against that a bit because to me they those things can sound very unnatural very quickly when they're done they become very mechanical. So I'll intentionally c- cover a line of dialogue slightly if I can get away with it or at least get close to an overlap or try to fight that sort of trope of that. But you know it is a way to also keep some life in the backgrounds that otherwise the director might just be like I, the dog no, it's getting on the dog just get rid of the dog. You know, and that's that's worse than cutting it around the dialogue. So you sort of pick your battles, and but yeah, there, there are those tropes and those cliches, of course. That every suburban ambience has a lawnmower or a sprinkler. Every you know, every city ambience guilty. has a siren. Yeah, of course we're all guilty. I mean, those <laughs> things work. Th- those things, those things are there for a reason because they work, um, and to some degree, and because they're expected. You know, every every shot of any rural ambience anywhere in the world has a red tailed hawk. You know, these are the kind of things that, that sort of drive you crazy, but it's true. Um, and those are some of the worst examples. But yeah, but, you know, then again, if you're cutting, you know, something like Dark Crystal or Lord of the Rings, you know, you want all of those little off-screen effects because otherwise it's very boring sounding. And, you know, and when they start to compete with the dialogue, you know, you're going to lose. So you have to sort of learn to cut around, cut around the action, cut around the dialogue, or at least find sounds that won't compete in the frequency range with the dialogue. you know any trick you can do to sort of keep the life in there right without drawing attention to yourself that's what we're always trying to do is like sneak things in i think background editors are very sneaky you know we have to be because we can't you know if it's drawing attention to it it's going to get called out and somebody's going to you know some producer's going to be like i don't like that sound and you're like so um yeah so i think you know i have my i have a little collection of sounds in, in my mind that i know that i've recorded little details. I know the good dogs that can bark in the distance in between lines if I need them and things like that and I'm always carrying a recorder with me looking for those little tidbits and things like that.
0: What do you call the tracks that you put those on?
1: When I lay out my backgrounds I don't I don't necessarily give them a name. Off-screen effects, I guess we would call them most of the time, but you know, I put them in like the last pre-dub of the backgrounds. So or you know, or specific details or something like that. But usually they're off-screen, right? So they usually go lumped together in one pre-dub so whether it's an off-screen single bird or a dog or a lawnmower or whatever you know they that's that gray area between the background tracks and the effects tracks they they go to the background stem but but they're you know treated more like cut effects
3: i've i agree with tim where i try to kind of like weed the offstage effects not like oh somebody uh somebody just talked oh let's have a dog bark maybe i'll have like a telephone ring like right before a line of dialogue so it's like It feels more natural, but sometimes I'll be like, oh, maybe if I move that like a frame back, it'll feel a little bit better. So sometimes every single time I get done with an episode, I'll play back that episode and be like, do like little nudges here and there just like to get a better feel for how everything's playing with each other. But yeah, I just, I usually just call those effects offstage effects or spotted effects. And they're just on their own pre-dub. Sometimes the mixer wants the interiors on a, on one pre-dub and then exteriors on a different pre-dub. It really just depends on the mixer.
2: Yeah, I find usually I base my organization off of the mixer. If I, if I haven't worked with them before, I'll ask like, hey, how do you want this laid out? And like I know, on one show I worked on, the mixer wanted all door bursts on the D set, <laughs> which I was like, "That that makes it easy, D for doors." Yeah,
4: yeah.
1: <laughs> I do that as a mixer. I mean, I lay out my entire show based on that. Electricity explosions are always on E. Oh. Cars are always on C. That Body is balls are always really on smart. B. <laughs> For yeah. certain types of movies that you know that are going to have those recurring things, it's actually quite a quite a useful thing to do sometimes because I never have to look at a at a binky. I just know instinctively what things are going to be. I mean, you you can't do that for the entire show, but yeah, actually, a lot of mixers I know like to do that as well.
4: Yeah, did hmm. didgeridoos and doors on D. <laughs> was, yeah,
1: exactly. no, let's go back. Yeah, let's go
4: back to the binky. What right. was that? Yeah, w- what's a binky?
1: A binky. You don't know what a binky is. I don't know what a you binky kids. is. You kids. <laughs> Uh, Well, a binky (laughs) takes its name from a baby's blanket. We call those binkies, right? The child needs their blanket. A binky is basically a top sheet of a layout of the organization of the mix. So that the mixer in the old days, before they could look at a Pro Tools screen, would have literally a printed sheet of paper that was basically the the pre-dub layout. So AFX, punches, uh, door slams, whatever, BFX, body falls, and then that would help them... Guide them because you know they weren't they didn't have screens for the longest time right they couldn't mm-hmm. see the Pro Tools they couldn't see any waveforms and so they had no indication of what the sound was until they listened to it And that would just help guide them you, you also called it a top sheet but they were usually made by the assistants handwritten out before the mix this was before everybody just looks at a Pro Tools screen now but we still we still call them binkies we even make special Pro Tools versions of that where we print all of the material. To mono waveforms, and then we build out a Pro Tools session that just has mono track for AFX, BFX, and very quickly the mixer can see where there's material and it has a name and a little waveform, so it's kind of like a top sheet in computer form. That's smart. Yeah, and it just it just helps them move fast, you know, because they're they have all this material. They might have, you know, the show we just finished had 800 tracks of effects. They they don't know where everything is. They need some guidance, and you know, otherwise they just turn to me and like, "Where's that door closing?" And then I've got to try to go look for it. And so we we try to basically build them. Some helper information along the way. And we still call them binkies for
0: some reason. I, I'm, I'm familiar that. with what you're talking about. I've just never heard it called a binky before, but <laughs> yeah. I, I love that uh, phraseology. It makes sense when you explain it like that. Let's talk about the idea of uh, we're all working on a minimum 5 1 these days, but mostly probably ambience. How do you go about building out uh, surround ambiences when you don't necessarily always have surround recordings?
4: Uh, yeah, I will say like full disclosure, like I, as a editor mixer have only worked at five one. So I've never personally mixed in like anything larger format than that. I just hand that off to the people who know what they're doing and they do a great job. So like, that's where my experience is. And so like, I, I always ask my re recording mixers, like, where is your template, and also, like how would you like this arranged? because the last thing I want to do is cut a bunch of intricate backgrounds to my philosophy, and they're like, "Oh no, I want all the the doors on the D food group, and I'm like, "Oh no, I put them on the w food group for wooden doors, and then I have to like go through the whole session and then like rearrange everything, and it's time I'm not gonna get paid for probably, so uh, yeah, I always ask them like what do they want, and to answer your question. I like, I'm personally, maybe it's just like me working with a lot of like my recordings or stereo recordings, but um, I usually cut a lot of stereos and and mixers. I've worked with are fine with that. They're totally cool, like moving them around. If it's a night scene uh, and there are crickets are motivated, I'll like try to give them two so they could throw some in the back, some in the front uh, that are matchy if I don't have like a nice five o cricket bed or something. But yeah, like I, I mostly stick to... cutting a lot of stereos to be honest even on my Atmos shows but again I work in television mostly so like I know we're like gotta gotta keep it moving you know so they're not like looking for the utmost detail whereas like you know if if I can I try to find five five O tracks um to lay in because sometimes they add like a nice space to the to the recording but it all depends I've heard like five O recordings that are just so boring to me <laughs> and i and like if the source material's great as a stereo i'm like cool like and i and i won't just cut that i will always cut like a, i don't know a minimum four tracks like if not if not eight and again we're talking tv here um but like yeah like a a good like five six if it's a dense city scene like eight minimum you know like like give the mixer lots of options but try to not overcrowd it but yeah that that's that's my philosophy and I, and I, if the re-recording mixer wants it I'll cut monos for like helping match the dialogue if they need that for air but yeah in terms of like the types of recordings are typically for me it's it's boring it's just stereos
1: <laughs> there was a period of time where I was really interested in surround recording for film and I bought a very expensive Amazonics mic and did a lot of recording and what I found pretty quickly was that the nuances of surround recordings are lost almost immediately in a film. Once the dialogue is in, once the music is in, those those beautiful little details you can hear when you listen to the raw recordings just don't survive. And what you almost always have to do is to create that immersive sound field with monos and stereos and just elements and you break it apart. You know, the bird that's going to go in the front left, the the cricket's going to go in the back right, and these types of things. The only time I ever had really good experience with surround recordings was on Finding Dory. And I spent three days at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, had sort of full access to record there. And the the aquarium in the movie was sort of modeled after that aquarium. So I was able to record a lot of the exhibits and the cafeterias and print them into seven ones back then. This was, uh, I wasn't doing Atmos then, but, um, and a lot of the backgrounds in Dory are actually just these seven one beds from this ambisonics work that I had done. And they just fit perfectly and there was really nothing else needed. In fact, there's a couple scenes In Dory, where the entire ambiences are literally one 7.1 track and nothing else. But that was about the only time I've ever had success doing that. Now I've pretty much sort of abandoned surround recording, to be honest. And I think that it's amazing for certain things, for video games, for encoding ambisonics, for directional things that you need. But I found in the film work that you need more dynamics than the surround. So it's fine to take like a 7.1 bed of air as you're jumping off point. But you're always going to have to cut a bunch more details on top of it. And the worst thing is you can't layer... 10 7 1 tracks on top of each other, right? You just get noise really quickly. That's the other problem with surround recordings, is you might start with one as the bass, but you can't cut a bunch of them together.
0: Kayla, are you working mostly with stereo tracks?
2: Yeah. Uh I was gonna say that actually <laughs> makes me feel better because I'm sitting here like I for for years, because I was working in, in like offices that are shared with other assistant editors or junior editors, and so I was always working on headphones. And now even with my home setup, I just have stereo speakers. I don't have the, I don't have the fancy setups that you guys have, but. Oh, um, no,
3: I've. I only had stereo for like the longest time and I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a plebeian. And I finally got a, I'm finally at uh, LCR right now. I'm like, ah, it's, it makes such a difference to hear like the center channel. But no, I worked on with stereo for like the longest time and it's still great.
2: Yeah. Yes. I think a lot of it is because of that. Like I'm only listening to it in stereo anyways. So I tend to stick to just stereo tracks and and, and monos for detail, because it's what I've always done.
4: (laughs) Yeah, kind of in that same vein, like Mitch, you just mentioned, like the dialogue coming out of the center, which I agree is really nice if you're on a five-one project. But um, I'm curious what you all do when cutting your backgrounds, if you play the dialogue or not, because I certainly do. I like always have the dialogue up.
3: Yep. Yep. I play the dialogue. I play the music. Mm hmm. Just to see how everything's playing together. Yeah. Even in like, it's mostly temp music for the most part. But sometimes like in The Last of Us, they use some of that score. Oh,
4: yeah. No, you got to play the music. If there's and you're like cutting these like cute little leaves, like tickling branches. And you're like, these are the best little leaves ever. Like everyone's going to be stoked on these. And then you're like, where the, where the wait, there's music here. You know? So, yeah, I agree.
1: But, you know, the danger, though, I, I, I will say I never listen to the dialogue for the first few passes. And then, of course, you have to. And the, mu- and the d- music as well. But the music is always changing, too, right? That temp music is probably not going to be with the final music. It might give you the rough mm-hmm. placement and sometimes mm-hmm. the idea of it. But I wouldn't make decisions necessarily based on temp music tracks. And also, for me... I like to cut without those things because I want to know what the possibilities are so that then I'm going to go fight with a director or fight for things that I believe in like hey I don't think you should put music here which I'll fight for every every movie that I'm on if I really believe that. And so I want to be able to basically work in pure possibility mode without sort of immediately surrendering to something if I think that it's if I think there's a better option available to us. And I fear that, like, sometimes if you, you know, I mean, I've worked on movies that are 85, 90 percent scored. And in a lot of those movies, we fought. I mean, rings, we fought for several moments in there because we had just worked on our own and we had developed whole scenes without music. And then we presented them and we said we don't, you know, and and we won some of those battles. And music was pulled out at the last minute in a few places and rings and stuff. And so I, I think, you know, yeah, you have, of course, you have to listen to those things. But don't don't let it demoralize you because sometimes it can and um, you know, cut the detail leaves anyway because you never know when the director is going to be at the last minute. You know, I don't really like this music. You let's pull that out, and then you're caught with your pants down if you don't have something prepared well. You know, that's one thing. It's a different. I'm curious to hear all your thoughts on this because there's a big, two big schools of thought with cutting backgrounds. One is it's very important foundational work, and you you cut all the detail and you do a really good job. And a lot of supervisors I know would basically say the backgrounds are almost never going to be heard it's an afterthought we cut the rest of the movie and then only we fill in the places where we think they're going to actually do something and it's i can't argue in theory that they're wrong i disagree with it for different reasons you know personally but it's an interesting philosophy which is basically why waste six weeks of cutting backgrounds when we can cut what's actually going to matter in a week once we actually know what's going to matter? That, you yeah,
4: know? it's a it's a budget decision. If you're on a budget film or breakneck like turnaround or something, right. yes, you have to start to get economical. But <laughs> I'm like you and I am like I uh, ideally like these do play, you know, so I, I, I always kind of like really detailed ambiences. And then if it's like straight up, like a needle drop music video moment, I'm going to like talk to the supervisor and the showrunners and be like, look, are we going to hear these ambiences? And they're like, absolutely not. I'm going to be like, okay. You know? And like, and then start to focus on spot effects or hard effects there. Now that the second description you made, uh, made me, Want to throw up because yeah, I know I don't I don't like, I, I like to yeah, I like the world even if they're going to kill it on the mix stage, like absolutely kill it if it serves the story, but like I want it there like you said, like what if they're like, you know what this music sucks or like we 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 don't want music here. what do we got and if there's
0: just like some stupid boring air you cut, then you're like, oh, I don't know there's a lot of times when we're hearing the BG's ambiences, but we're not even conscious of it. Like, it, it's not the—it's almost always not the f- the favored thing we're hearing. But sometimes even when you—mentally f- you can't hear it, there's some kind of emotional value to it being there anyway.
2: Yeah, I always describe it as, like, one of those things where um, you may not notice it when it's in there, but you'll definitely notice it if it's not. Because— yeah, For sure. Like, when you're wa- walking out in the world, you don't necessarily notice— Every car going by and the bird in the tree that you just walked past. But if all of those things are taken out and you're walking through a perfectly silent world, you're gonna notice. <laughs>
4: Yes. Yes. And yes. (laughs) That's like my (laughs) whole, that's my whole soapbox for like, okay. I just feel like there's been this like trend aesthetically in TV world that like everything must be like very clean, like sterile, clean, the backgrounds. and, And yes, I'm all for understanding dialogue. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, you have, you are, you are, taking away a sonic tool, which is what you just described, which is if you have ambiences and you say, want to go into the head of a character, you can now take them away. And that like, you could either use it to like make the audience feel uncomfortable, or you can do it to just make it more intimate voiceover, whatever it may be. But if you like have nothing there ever, then you're going to go nowhere. So you're just just stripping away huge dynamic sonic tools. So I'm so with you. And like, especially in like horror or anything that like you have tension. Oh, yeah. It's, I'm yeah. so
3: with you on that. One piece of advice I was given at an early stage of my career when cutting BGs for any scene just have one layer, make sure like this one layer has character. Just like if they strip like the rest, you're like left with just like something that has character in that scene. And I felt like, that was the best advice for cutting BGs cool. I could have ever gotten. Yeah, I like that. Say, like, oh, there's like a rattly AC or interesting room tone, not just like stale air.
4: Yeah, yeah. for sure.
1: One trick that I've learned is that even cutting a room tone for a long scene, I'll probably transition between three or four during the scene and never just find one and leave it for the length of the scene. Because mm. the, the brain will always filter out static sounds. That's what it does more than anything else. And so if you want anything to do any work, it's the, only the movement and the change of sound that actually has any power or effect. So I'll always blend and just long crossfades between different very different sounding room tones over the course of a scene even, or different birds or wind and trees or different things. It's just like the backgrounds always have to be moving for me. And um, unless you're specifically going to call out a very, very specific moment with the lack of, change or something like that then you have that tool available too but i just find that the the backgrounds have to always evolve even through a scene let alone through the movie you know and if even if i'm coming back to the same location again i'll never cut the same exact backgrounds i won't just copy and paste the backgrounds i mean i know that probably has to happen in certain tv shows and the and same things, five you know. guys
3: are still at that bar <laughs> exactly wow, why are they still they keep there talking about the yeah, same yeah. thing over yeah, and over no, again. I, yeah yeah absolutely. and
1: i get that but you know that dude mike just stabbed someone <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. again again <laughs>
4: He's not in jail no i'm with you on that tim and if if you know because in tv world like you're saying we, we have to like chop chop and uh and so there is copy paste work that is done i will take that ambience and i'll cut it in the middle and move it you know move that part to the back so you don't hear the same intro but if i'm good to myself it's honestly just like for my own entertainment i will typically have like if a show takes place in a dense city i will have like So many different (laughs) cities that I cut and I will get so bored of the same thing quickly,
0: even if that means swapping out just a few of the layers, you know, just to give it that variety. I'm with you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I think this has been a really fun talk. A couple of you mentioned it's something that uh, we could talk about a lot longer. And it's strange that BGs just aren't talked about very often. So I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation. And uh, we'll have to kind of regroup in two years or something and uh, continue because there's still lots more to talk about. So thanks very much for joining us, everybody.
1: Yeah, thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Nice to meet you all. Yeah, nice to meet you
2: guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Big time thanks to Michael, Kayla, Mitchell, and Tim for taking part in this episode. Listeners should take a moment to head over to Tim Nielsen's new website, sonifex.com. There you can find a fantastic interview that Tim did with Gary Rydstrom, plus lots of amazing sound effects libraries that you can purchase. Don't forget about our sound design meetup in New York City coming up on October 26th at the Crompton Ale House in Chelsea. I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of people from the New York sound community. It's going to be a really fun night. This episode was volunteer edited by Matthew Mutton, who is a pleasure to work with. Matthew is based in the UK and his Sonic Adventure is just beginning. He has finished college studying sound for visual media and is now working helping people with their passion projects and indie films. He's currently doing sound mixing, editing, and sound design as a freelancer. He can be found on Twitter at Matt MattMuttonSound. My name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening and spreading the word about Tonebenders. Talk to you soon.
3: Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to infotonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or BH. Or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening.
0: Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.